It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I assume you're listening. Jeff Landrieu, the Louisiana Attorney General, rising star on the Republican side, will be joining us uh, talking about where we're going with testing in states. We had a big announcement. Governor DeSantis on Fox and Friends minutes ago uh, said, I wouldn't say minutes ago. It was at the top of the hour, so 45 minutes ago. Uh, he said he got uh, about a million. He's got uh, hundreds of thousands of tests for people of Florida. Again, coming big for his state because the federal government has not. And even though they promised to, and then he's got a year head started, all the tests. The president didn't even fill out the invoice. And then we find out the rapid test might not be accurate. Uh, you might have it, and it might be inaccurate 80% of the time. I don't know. We have 80% of the country virtually vaccinated. That's not good enough. Why is that good enough for a rapid test? So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. As of today... We have arrested and charged more than 725 defendants in nearly all 50 states and the District of Columbia for their roles in the January 6th attack. He's such an inspirational speaker. Here we go. Uh, January 6th. One year is today. An ugly day in American history propelled by an ill-advised Stop the Steal rally, by, uh, but overplayed by, 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 of course, the Stop the Steal rally by the president, but overplayed by the politically-minded Democrats who seek to convert it into a uh, blowing up the filibuster movement, a nationalized election movement. We'll discuss it. Number two. What we're doing now is not working, plain and simple. Uh, And so this is our path forward. This is how we reduce violent crime. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, that just depends upon your definition of criminal. How about resisting arrest? How about hookers? Uh, If COVID does not kill the Democrats in the midterm election, then crime. And now we say yet another DA put criminals ahead of law-abiding citizens will. My sense is we will not forgive uh, New York. Uh, It will not be about uh, smashing. It will soon become the capital of smashing grab uh, uh, once again as we continue to see it spiral downward, despite what the mayor is saying. Number one. I will not allow them to take our children hostage. I will not allow them to compromise the future of this generation of CPS students. That is not going to happen. As Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, COVID chaos. That's how I characterize the Biden approach one year into the four-year reign, from testing to the red China-like mandates to the circus of the CDC, and now his refusal to take on teachers' unions to fight to fight to put our kids back in the classroom. We're witnessing an epic fail and collapse of the premier campaign promise, although the President of the United States wants to talk about January 6th. And I do believe that was a significant moment in American history, ugly moment. There are no winners there ever. I don't want to soft-pedal it. Uh, the president refusal to accept the election is the single worst thing that he has done uh, as a president and now as an ex-president. He has battled all the way back. His approval ratings probably equal or not above President Biden's because President Biden's been so terrible. And the president's policies were great. And the Russia hoax has blown up. But when it comes to the January 6th, the fact that he had the rally uh, and then said march down to the Capitol, I don't think he ever wanted to break the perimeter. And you can see by Donald Trump Jr.'s tweets, 
He spoke and didn't think they were going to break the perimeter. was urging his dad to act. And you saw that over and over again uh, everywhere. But I don't want to talk about that to start with. I want to talk about what really matters most, crime and kids. When it comes to kids getting back in schools, we thought it was pretty much agreed from Anthony Fauci to the president of the United States, get kids back in school, to the secretary of education, get kids back in school. But the third largest public school district in the country in Chicago canceled school again because they're in a standoff. They're in a standoff saying it's not safe. Listen. Bus drivers, an issue. Superintendents, teachers, subs. I understand it. There are some kids without teachers. There are some classrooms light because some kids have tested positive. I get it. But we have to learn to live with this. The Omicron will drop soon. Let's not make punish more kids for a pandemic that's already taken two years of schooling away from them. And if the President of the United States ever spoke as passionately and vociferously Against teachers unions like he does against people like, I don't know, Republicans and the unvaccinated, I think they would really, his approval scores would go up. Mayor Lightfoot, she's a Democrat at her core against the teachers unions and they're at war. Cut one. I will not allow them to take our children hostage. I will not allow them to compromise the future of this generation of CPS students. That is not going to happen. Really? Uh, I'm pretty sure they are, and they're not. So she says, I'm not paying any teachers that don't show up at work. Here's Jesse Sharkey, uh, who is the president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Cut three. Right now, um, going into schools puts us at risk. Um, puts our students and families at risk. We'd rather be in uh, our classes teaching. We, we'd like to have an in-person school open. Uh, and um, what we are saying, though, is that right now we're in the middle of a dangerous surge. Uh, it is uh, breaking all the records. Yeah, we noticed. And we're going to restaurants. We're going to sporting events. We're going to concerts. Uh, we are attending. A lot of people are going to work. We make adjustments. We have to learn to live with it. That should be the message that you're sending. Not trying to keep teachers at home because there's a risk. The whole world's at risk thanks to China. We know that. It's 2022. We've known this since 2019. And he sits at home. Now, I know there's about 80 school districts over in Pennsylvania that aren't going to school. In Milwaukee, there's some challenges. In Maryland, there's some huge challenges. I get it. But the approach has to be get back to school. Do you agree? I look at this guy like Josh Okel, and I saw him with Tucker last night. This guy's recovering from cancer. They told him to stay home. He said, forget it. I am going to teach. Cut six. I joined the Chicago Public Schools as a teacher, first and foremost as a teacher. And uh, my role, I believe my role, should be inside the classroom with my students. Should not be in the picket line. I did not join CPS to be a union member. First and foremost, to be a teacher. I believe that there are ways to fight City Hall. You don't dangle the plight of the kids in the middle of the fight just to secure demands. There are other ways. I believe there are other ways. I have nothing against the union, but I have something against people using the union as a tool for political gain. And that's just it. That really echoes so many of the teachers I know could not care. They don't talk about money. They pull money out of their pocket for boats and boards to help the kid in the class who's having trouble getting the notebooks. Uh, Obviously, you're dealing with a whole bunch of problems when kids have challenges at home from divorce uh, to drug use. And, And teachers don't say, well, I'm off the clock. You know, there's ways to make extra money, but you don't do it. 
uh, for the summers. You just don't. I mean, you know most of the teachers. You have good feelings about them. Uh, and I'm not saying that 7 out of 10 didn't vote for Joe Biden, who's siding with them in the unions. But it just should be, at this point, a five-alarm fire in favor of the kids. You don't have testing. Now, in Chicago's situation, I'm not, I'm not forgiving her. Evidently, she uh, flooded the, uh, the millions of dollars. She got $5 billion for a school system. They say the ventilation's not there. The plexiglass, which I hear doesn't work. Plexiglass is not there. The adjustments have not been made. They put millions of dollars into this so-called CRT versions of curriculum. Millions of dollars. So I'm not making up for her. But don't expect them to listen. She's vilified the cops. Now she's demanding cops go and uh, work overtime. She now, now she wants uh, 200 more homicide detectives. Now she's, she's siding with teachers. Now when teachers don't listen to her, when they say go back to work, she's wondering what's going on. Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State is listening to this little debate. was on Fox News at night last night. Cut eight. Teachers are great people, but teachers unions are there, quote unquote, for the kids like the United Auto Workers is there for the cars. I mean, of course, COVID is dangerous potentially, but every retail worker or police officer in this country has just been going to work for the past two years. We have vaccinations. They drop risk by something like 90%. It's not unrealistic, given how virtual learning has failed. It's not abusive to ask teachers to show up and go to work. That, that's going to have to return to being the normal sometime very soon. And hopefully that time is right now. Yes. And the last thought about COVID, and I'll take your calls just around the bend, one 408 I know you have your own opinions. You don't, believe me, you don't have to agree with me, uh, especially if you're a teacher. Uh, I, you know, you don't agree. I, I want the kids back in school. Look at the, uh, the plus minus situation. You got to get them plus. I'm, not, I'm like what Florida's doing, make it a parental choice to wear a mask, especially when we find out cloth masks don't work. The other thing is there's supposed to be testing for the kids to make the teachers feel better, 91% of which are vaccinated. So to do that, you should have money. And to do that, the president asked for 1.9 trillion dollars in March of last year. Where's that money? And don't tell me you don't have tests. The president never ordered the test let alone distribute the test. If they were in a big warehouse, I would go get them. But they're not because he didn't order them. How do you figure that? No uh, PR, uh, uh, PRP test. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no rapid tests. Byron York is not buying that the president wants to, is asking for more time. He's already had the job a year, vilified this president for at least a year for this very thing. Forget it. Cut 14. What's coming out of the White House is a plea for more time. I mean, the entire thrust of what President Biden said yesterday was, please give us some more time. We need more time to get the test. We need more time to get this uh, Pfizer pill widely uh, distributed. And remember, he's been in office nearly a year, and his campaign was based on the idea that he, Joe Biden, was an experienced hand. He knew government. He knew how to make it work and to deal with a crisis like this. And now you've had his vice president say they were surprised by the Delta variant. They're surprised by the Omicron variant. And now they just need more time. This is not something that the American people are happy with. And you're seeing that in his declining poll ratings on his handling of COVID. All right. So um, we'll discuss that. Uh, and uh, again, it's inexcusable. I mean, Biden, I, I watched it. I mean, Biden people are even saying it. I'm watching Jake Tapper on CNN just call him out on the test. This is not hard. 
We're not asking to invent something. We're not asking you to get a man on Mars, which we could be doing within five years. I'm not asking that when it doesn't happen. There's so many moving parts. Okay, the space program let you down. All I'm asking you to do is fill out an invoice. Somebody else do it. So when we come back, I'll take your calls. Also, if you want to write BrianKillMe.com, just click on comments, um, and, and I'll get to you. So right now, the president's making remarks on January 6th. And the vice president already made a remark. So I'll bring you some of those excerpts. It was an ugly day in America's past. But I do believe um, he's never made a smooth speech in his life, especially over the last five years. He's trying to make an awkward one now. Uh, I do believe the Democrats have went from concern about America to, my goodness, this is all we have to blow up the filibuster and pass election reform. That's what this is pivoted to. Do you agree? Brian Kilmeade both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We saw with our own eyes rioters menace these halls, threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, literally erecting gallows to hang the Vice President of the United States of America. What did we not see? We didn't see a former president who had just rallied the mob to attack, sitting in the private dining room off the Oval Office in the White House, watching it all on television. Uh, He's still speaking right now. That's the president of the United States. He followed up after the vice president spoke. Uh, They're looking to pivot this, uh, looking January 6th, one year later, and push it towards we need nationalized elections because Republicans are trying to change the election rules in all these states, and it's just flat out wrong. It got the all-star game taken out of Georgia for no reason. They have mischaracterized what the Texas rules would be. With this done, and Republicans have been clumsy in defending themselves, what you do is you just say the truth. The truth is we stretched the rules for the pandemic. It was basically a must. We have to agree on that. But the way we did it was irresponsible. Bypassing legislations with Democratic governors it was totally irresponsible. It bred distrust. The one thing I do think is terrible, this whole doubting of elections, of, of results. And it was Stacey Abrams never admitted she lost. Hillary Clinton never admitted she lost. The Russians turned it over. She said, I beat him on the, I kept talking about she beat him on the, um, she didn't beat him in electoral college, but she beat him on the popular vote. We have over and over again her saying that. And then Donald Trump not accepting the loss. Yeah, there were problems. But there weren't problems to the fact that you could really prove this anything. His great legal team, and I'm being sarcastic, they were terrible. Never proved it. So you could say whatever you want. You know, I, I could pretend that um, they're the Giants blowing in the Super Bowl, but they don't. I watch them. So unless you prove to me that all those other six, those, uh, those 12 teams that beat them cheated, um, I'm not going to go on your word. So even though there might be things there, I haven't seen any evidence of it. So the president of the United States gets to tee off on Donald Trump. It shows me a couple of things. It shows me he does not have anything else to talk about. He's failed on the pandemic. He's failed on the economy. He's failed on national security, failed when it comes to Afghanistan, failed on reestablishing American dominance and leader of the free world, especially as you see the Russians move in uh, to Ukraine and uh, China assert themselves with a brand new trade agreement uh, in the South China Sea with all what our, our Japan and South Korea and Australia and our allies. So what does he do? 
Talk about a terrible day for Republicans and for the country. And that's what he's doing now. Here is uh, Glenn Greenwald. He said this last night with Tucker. Cut 28. I always said I didn't think Americans woke up in the morning and worried about Vladimir Putin, that they were going to vote based on Russiagate. I don't think they wake up in the morning scared of what happened on January 6th. I think they have a lot of other things on their mind. And it's a loser. But, you know, the thing is, this whole attempt to call January 6th an insurrection, the Democrats have been in charge of the Justice Department for an entire year now. They've been investigating very aggressively everything in connection with January 6th. Do you know how many people have been charged with inciting insurrection or sedition or treason or domestic terrorism as a result of anything? Zero. Exactly. Just like Robert Mueller never indicted anybody for criminally conspiring with Russia. They live in this fantasy world that never corresponds to the reality, and they just think if they keep feeding on on it, one day it might come true. Yeah. It's uh, it's it, it, They're overdoing it. And I would say this. You know, of course, 1814, the last time, you see the, you know, when the Capitol was burned, when the White House was burned to the ground, obviously an ugly day. We were at war, a president sitting alone on a horse, his army disappeared, the militia evaporated, and the British took over the Capitol. That's a pretty big deal. I got it. Uh, this is the second serious time, and it was, a, it was a point that was brought up by Joe Biden. In the Civil War, they didn't even burn the Capitol. So um, they did have a, a, a Civil War flag, a Southern flag, a Confederate flag in there. That is absolutely true. There were people who took over Nancy Pelosi's office. There was a sense that, you know, Michael Waltz told me that they broke off an arm of a chair and he was willing. He didn't know if they're coming for him. The guy's a green brace and I'm going to fight for myself. You know, they were saying uh, hang Mike Pence. That's real. And it was it's it's unacceptable. But to pretend that the riots every day in Seattle, in Chicago, in New York, in Portland, in California, in Los Angeles in particular, when you say that's no big deal, but the only thing that matters was. The Capitol, I think that's a little inauthentic, too. So the president's going to try to make most of this. And the fact is that he keeps on bringing up the former president, shows that he definitely fears, and so does the party, that this guy's ready to run again. And he's totally built himself back up uh, to a place that I didn't think was possible uh, on January 6th. And I actually said at the time. We're going to come back and we're going to speak to the attorney general of Louisiana, Jeff Landry, about getting tests and standing up his state. Because the federal government has totally let us down. And the president's doing, uh, did what Donald Trump said right away. It's not a federal government issue. This is a state issue. Let the governors run it. Guess who said that last week? Joe Biden. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Well, sir, we know that mandates have not worked. And just look at the past several weeks. We had over 500,000 people with positive tests two days ago. And then just yesterday, I think we were up to almost 500,000 as well. So the mandates don't work. Uh, what we did in the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, bipartisan legislation, is we know that the White House wants to give our military personnel a dishonorable discharge if they're separated because of their refusal to take the vaccine. Uh, There you go. That was Senator Roger Marshall talking about the big unnecessary war we're having with ourselves. Do you know seven seven plus out of every 10 Americans, 12 and up, have gotten the vaccine? But that has not stopped this president of the United States, along with almost every Democratic governor, to do go out of their end mayor, going out of their way to put mandates in place that fire firefighters, policemen, hospital workers, and anybody associated that they can afford to lose. And it's just wrong. And that's why, especially when it comes to private industry, attorney generals have banned together Republicans to get these mandates lifted. And that's why the Supreme Court 
has uh, had an emergency session for this. Jeff Landry knows all that. He's part of the lawsuit. He's the Louisiana Attorney General. Uh, Jeff, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thank you for having me. Jeff, you guys got to win. I mean, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm a a dispassionate person. I cannot tell you how many nurses I've interviewed, how many, just one today in Rhode Island, uh, that lost their job because some mayor decides you don't get vaccinated, you are fired without pay. The same thing's happening with our military, and now they're going for small business. Can you tell the American people your point of view? Absolutely. Look, I think um, I, I certainly do agree with you. I think that based upon a decision of the court on Friday could chart a new course uh, for this country. I mean, if the court agrees with us, then liberty uh, and the Constitution prevail. If it doesn't, we have a basically a centralized government that can tell the American people how to dictate things in their life, like medical procedures, like vaccines. And so this is a very, very important case. Uh, it Again, like I said, I think it charts the direction of this country. So uh, where is the case at? Is this a written, you had this a written statement or are you arguing, arguing this statement? No, this is an unprecedented move by the U.S. Supreme Court to basically hold oral arguments on a stay motion uh, also on the day that the justices are going to conference. I know that. But, but, but who does uh, the oral? Who's doing it? So so I will be in the court and our Solicitor General Liz Murrow will be arguing part of it. The Solicitor General from Missouri and the Attorney General from Missouri will be in the court as well, arguing the second half of it. And then the OSHA case, uh, which deals with employees, uh, with employers with 100 or more employees, will be argued by another set of lawyers. So we've got probably about eight to 12 lawyers that will be in the court arguing two different cases back to back. So what's, uh, I know my emotional argument. I don't have the legal background. What is your legal constitutional argument in the nutshell? Well, I think it, it, I think it, it, it folds in well with the emotional argument and that this is liberty and constitutional construction, right? It, in this country, we don't allow the executive to rule by fiat, and we also don't allow the federal government to come in and dictate medical procedures onto the American citizens without their consent. And so, again, that's part of what we're arguing. Again, this is a stay motion, and in stays, the court basically says, look, we want to we pause the rule because allowing the rule to go into effect could cause irreparable harm to those that are affected. And that's what we're arguing. So we're telling the court, look, this needs to be paused while we go out and have the case litigated in the lower courts to determine whether or not the federal government has the power to do this. And to allow the rule to go forth while we litigate it would cause irreparable harm to all of those who would be forced to be vaccinated uh, against their will. A couple of things. Do you think the president's remarks and Anthony Fauci's remarks saying in this country we can't mandate the vaccine, will that come back to haunt him? Does that play a role? I think so. I mean, that's certainly something we'd, we'd like to bring before the court is that, look, even the president admits that there is no federal solution to this problem. And so, again, I think it, make, it, it only strengthens our hand. I think that what we saw in the briefs that the federal government has put uh, for Friday's argument, they basically let a lot of their arguments on the table. In other words, there were things that they did not even brief, which was kind of surprising. Uh, we're hoping, Brian, I, I really am hoping that the court is going to do the right thing and uphold the rule of law and the Constitution in this in this country. So I'm talking to Jeff Landry, Louisiana's attorney general. 
So you, you have a Democratic governor, and the Democratic governor has a say in this. So as you fight this and there's a stay on these mandates, what is the governor empowered to do? Well, look, I think that's – you know what? That's a great and very important question for the American people to understand. I do believe that the court believes, based upon an older case called Jacobson, that states have the ability to implement vaccine mandates. Of course, that's based upon their constitution and their legislature and the laws of each individual states. What we're saying is that the federal government cannot do that. Back in Louisiana, we have a suit against our governor because he's trying to mandate vaccines for all kindergarten through 12th grade students in Louisiana. So we're suing it because we believe Louisiana law does not allow him to do that. So, and yeah, I guess you, you're going to have to handle that as well. What about people who say, look at ever since I had these mandates, look how many more people have gotten the shots, how many lives could have been saved. So it proves it works. What do you say to that? Well, look, I think that it, this is all about liberty. I mean, I think that I do, I know people who have gotten the shots, many of them who have gotten the shots and had no reactions. I've known others who have had severe reactions. Uh, in fact, our solicitor general who's arguing the case, her son spent four days in ICU after the vaccine. And so, again, I think it should be based upon a personal choice. I'm not an anti-vax person, Brian. I think every person should have the liberty to decide their health care choices. I don't think there's any question about that. I didn't think there was any question about that. What I also think backs up your argument, I'm not sure if it makes the oral argument, is the fact is they told us get double vax or single vax with Johnson & Johnson, and we're okay. The durability is in question. But now we're hearing about a booster, and we go overseas in Israel. It's just a fourth shot. And I'm just if people are worried about a slippery slope, we're on the slippery slope, aren't we? I agree. Oh, we're sliding down it in real fast. Again, when you look at the numbers, more people allegedly, based upon the government statistics, have died from COVID after the vaccines were implemented than before. I mean, that's just statistical, statistically true. So, in other words, we have had more deaths under President Biden than under President Trump due to COVID. And remember, the vaccines were put in into effect in December of 2020. I have to think back. We've, we've been in this pandemic so long, right? And so, again, I think it just shows that in order for us to combat this virus, it takes our healthcare professionals and being able to work with individuals on one-on-one patient-to-doctor relationships, not the government trying to come in and create this one-size-fits-all to stop this virus. Uh, so listen, I'm having a hard time pushing back on you. I disagree with every cell in my body with what you're saying. And and the fact is now they're telling my college-age kids they got they can't go back to campus without a booster. And what are they going to do, drop out? You know, they're athletes. So oh, and now I'm not the only one. Uh, every parent is dealing with the same thing. I mean, every Ivy League student, what are you going to drop out of Yale because of a booster? You say to yourself, wow, I worked my whole life to get here and it could set me up for the rest of my life. So they really are using a form of extortion with medicine that is hardly proven. And they're showing they already is not stopping the virus because there's so many breakthroughs. There's no difference between the vaccinated and unvaccinated that we could see through data. But I want to get you on the today. We know it's been one year since January 6th. And we know, too, there's been a massive amount of arrests due to it. I want you to hear what Glenn Greenwald said. Cut 28. 
I always said I didn't think Americans woke up in the morning and worried about Vladimir Putin, that they were going to vote based on Russiagate. I don't think they wake up in the morning scared of what happened on January 6th. I think they have a lot of other things on their mind. And it's a loser. But, you know, the thing is, this whole attempt to call January 6th an insurrection, the Democrats have been in charge of the Justice Department for an entire year now. They've been investigating very aggressively everything in connection with January 6th. Do you know how many people have been charged with inciting insurrection or sedition or treason or domestic terrorism no, as a result of anything? Zero. Exactly. Just like Robert Mueller never indicted anybody for criminally conspiring with Russia. They live in this fantasy world that never corresponds to the reality. And they just think if they keep feeding on, on it, one day it might come true. So there's been a lot of arrests and we obviously have a lot of video, but there was no master plan that the FBI has been able to unmask. What about his what he was saying? Is that a worthy thing to point out? Look, here's what I'll tell you. I don't in any way support any type of violence or, the, or, or basically the breaking of our laws in this country. Attorney generals from around this country swear to uphold the law. And, and the problem in this country is the erosion of the rule of law. I mean, what's missing from the media's reports are, you know, headlines such as violent protests leaves trail of damage for feds, meaning all of the dozens of Secret Service officials were injured in D.C. in clashes. That wasn't on January 6th. That was way before January 6th. Portland protesters have caused $2.3 million in damages to federal buildings. Again, that was before January 6th. Two federal buildings in L.A. damaged during protests. Right. Rioters set fire to federal courthouse. Let's have a committee and talk about the violence that swept through this country and the rule of law that has not been upheld on all acts of violence, Brian. And that is what's missing from this particular debate. In other words, we're picking and choosing now the type of rioters that we want to prosecute. If they look to nationalize elections, will the people of Louisiana accept that? If they do say again, if they looked, if they tried to nationalize elections with this uh, John Lewis law or this other movement by getting rid of the filibuster, if they break Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema and try to nationalize election laws because they claim they have no choice about because of what's happening in Georgia and places like Texas, would would the people of Louisiana stand for that? Well, their attorney general absolutely wouldn't, and and you and I would have a foot race to the courthouse. Uh, to basically file that suit. I think any federal law that sets to nationalize elections in this country is going to come in direct conflict uh, and and will clash with the U.S. Constitution. I think that that is very specific inside of our Constitution, that elections are set and conducted state by state. And the the issue, look, again, this goes back to why we're before the Supreme Court on Friday. The question is, do we still have 50 sovereign states? Are you still a sovereign as an individual in this country? Are you merely just a serf for the federal government? So it was great talking to you. Uh, best of luck with your argument, and I'm hoping for two victories uh, for the country. And again, neither of us are anti-vaccine. We just want you That's to be correct. able to make a choice because the, we are on the slippery slope. They're already making us go get a booster. Watch. Those vaccine cards that you might have logged into and gotten your state, suddenly they're going to go void without a booster. And then there'll be a fourth. Uh, and these aren't vaccines. These are shots. Jeff Landry, Louisiana's Attorney General. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you, Brian. Have a great day. All right. Best of luck in your argument. one 408 7669 I see you all over the place calling in, even some of you watching on Fox Nation. I appreciate it. 
We're going to probe up more excerpts from the president's speech. He directly called out Donald Trump. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. He built his lie over months. Wasn't based on any facts. He was just looking for an excuse, a pretext, to cover for the truth. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes in a full and free and fair election. There is simply zero proof the election results are inaccurate. A couple of things. Uh, he also got more votes than any other Republican in history uh, in one of the most bizarre elections ever where no one really campaigned. And it was part of the things, and no one's saying it's, it's, it's not his fault, but no one could campaign. Trump did it anyway. But he didn't. He never left his basement. He had a few small events with about 100 people because he couldn't get any momentum. He was a compromised candidate on the left because they didn't want Bernie Sanders. And now he's uh, there on January 6th commemorating the one year since that horrible day that nobody's making an excuse for. But he is calling out Trump directly. He's trying to, in a way, blur the message, I think, overshooting the target. Kimberly watching on Fox Nation. Hey, Kimberly. Hey. Um, sorry, I have you on speakerphone. It's okay. And get ready for your... work. Yeah. Um, so I am, <clears throat> I am not vaccinated. I am a, a Republican and a Christian. So um, I appreciate listening to your show. I just wanted to give a shout out. I work for California Public Education as a classified employee, and I know that there's been a lot of talk about the teachers' unions, but I am the chapter president for Sonoma County, Chapter 376, CSEA, and um, classified employees have worked since day one of the shutdown. We have continued to work in schools to keep schools running. We have fought for people, um, classified employees, like bus drivers and kitchen employees that were not able to... In Westchester, right? um, No, in oh, Sonoma, in Cal- California. Oh, Sonoma, California. My bad. So, yes, so yes. that is great. So let me ask you something. Are you are you running yes. it? Are you? Did you do a poll of your teachers and say, how do you want me to do it? Or did you tell them where the union stands? We have a separate union, the classified employees. We have a separate union, and we fought for our employees to continue working because we didn't want to see over 200 employees in our small community to be laid off. So this is our instructional aides, um, you know, just started to participate online and supporting the teachers while the teachers were at home teaching. Our classified employees were coming in and working every single day. Awesome. Did you find your, and, your, the parents were appreciative? Yes, yes. And I do speak every month to the school board about and reminding the public and the community how hard our classified employees work and how dedicated we have been. And everyone comes in. I have a great attitude. I get everyone rallied to uh, keep the morale going. And... Um, all right, so you hold know, on a second. I'm going to play sound. Since you're running the union, I'm going on your word on that. Kimberly, I want you to hear what the president of the Chicago Teachers Union said, Jesse Sharkey, cut three. Right now, um, going into schools puts us at risk 
um, puts our students and families at risk. We'd rather be in uh, our classes teaching. We, we'd like to have an in-person school open. Uh, and um, what we are saying though, is that right now we're in the middle of a dangerous surge. Uh, it is uh, breaking all the records. What's your reaction to his concerns? Well, I, I believe because we have proven over two years that classified employees who are the custodians and the bus drivers and the kitchen employees and the clerical workers and the instructional assistants, we have proven that we know how to uh, still work and be safe. We wash our hands. We practice gotcha. social distancing. So you know about the risk and willing to try it. And that's just it because you understand the value to the kids because that's a huge downside. We're all in danger, yeah, to a degree. And I really appreciate a real-life union story that I can get behind. one 408 7669 The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you ever want to order the President Freedom Fighter and push back against the Project 1619, go to briankilmeade.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. At the bottom of the hour, we have the maybe the best police commissioner in the business, him and Ray Kelly, Bill Bratton, on this new attorney general. Uh, this new attorney general in Manhattan that basically is going to go as easy on crime as they are in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia. That's resulted in just uh, all hell breaking loose, the smash and grab capitals of the country, and gives us a situation where resisting arrest is now downgraded. Can you imagine being a cop and resisting arrest is not going to result in a long-time jail term? What does that say? If I'm a cop, forget it. You're not paying me enough to go grab that guy. Armed robbery has been downgraded. To We have to understand criminals more. Bill Bratton on that. So I can't wait to talk to him because we're all optimistic that Eric Adams might bring a new reasonable Democrat to the forefront. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. As of today, we have arrested and charged more than 725 defendants in nearly all 50 states and the District of Columbia for their roles in the January 6th attack. Yeah, January 6th, one year in the mark, an ugly day in American history, propelled by an ill-advised stop-the-steal rally by the former president. But... Democrats are overplaying their hand, in my view. Politically-minded Dems are looking to use this to convert it to blowing up the filibuster and nationalizing elections. I'll talk about it. Number two. What we're doing now is not working, plain and simple. Uh, And so this is our path forward. This is how we reduce violent crime. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, it, it, it just depends upon your definition of criminal. Uh, Alvin Bragg, that's what I was just referring to. If COVID does not kill the Democrats in the midterm elections, then crime will. This DA wants to put criminals ahead of law-abiding citizens, and I'm sickened by it. My sense is we will not forgive as a country. New York is going to look like San Francisco and Los Angeles unless this mayor stands up and does something. Number one. I will not allow them to take our children hostage. I will not allow them to compromise the future of this generation of CPS students. That is not going to happen. 
Uh, COVID chaos. That's how I characterize the Biden approach one year into his four-year reign. From testing to red China-like mandates to circus at the CDC, and now his refusals to take on the teachers' unions directly, just urge kids to get back in the classroom. We are witnessing an epic fail on all counts. Which goes back to my original point, is why the president just gave a blistering speech on January 6th and just blaming President Trump because that's how he got elected, because he wasn't President Trump, in my view. I am not soft-pedaling the raid on the Capitol and the idiocy of having a stop-the-steal rally and promising that they had empirical proof of a stealing of an election and not producing anything, and that's uh, from Rudy Giuliani on down. So let's listen to a little of President Biden blaming President Trump in election-like fashion. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. Well, he can't accept he lost. I mean, that's certainly his view. Uh, But he knows nothing about President Trump. They don't even know each other. Don't pretend like you can make it up. I just can't stand when people, uh, instead of talking about how they feel about the incident, they project how somebody else's ego, what somebody else was trying to do. You just tell me how you saw it. Because you cannot get in the President Trump's head. Uh, smarter people than you have that actually know him better that still can't. Uh, why the president was listening to some of the attorneys that he was listening to and why he thought it would be a good idea to take thousands of people and send them to the Capitol is uh, is dumb. And number two is leaving the Capitol, knowing that this rally was going to take place and they've gotten, they've gotten permits to go to the Capitol afterwards. Why there wasn't enough staffing, that is part of the bigger picture. They did not want a military presence in the Capitol. Remember the church. Remember the Bible. They didn't like that there were National Guard members there. The mayor didn't. The speaker didn't. So they left it vulnerable. The president told them to go there. I don't think the president ever wanted a raid on the Capitol. I don't. Cut 39. He built his lie over months. Wasn't based on any facts. He was just looking for an excuse, a pretext to cover for the truth. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president, defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes in a full and free and fair election. There is simply zero proof the election results are inaccurate. I hate the fact that uh, there's doubt now and everyone, when, when you lose, they're going to be doubt, going to bring it up. Stacey Abrams going to bring it up. Still not going to admit it. There were irregularities when there was no proof of that. But they pulled all these movies pulled out of Georgia because Stacey Abrams wouldn't admit that she lost the election. Remember that? So don't just say that Donald Trump is the market cornered on on contesting elections. Remember in 2016, most Democrats and a lot of independents didn't even want to admit that Donald Trump won because no one projected it. They were wrong. Trump outworked. His message was better. Uh, He was indefatigable. And he won that election. He won in uh, almost so many districts. He won Pennsylvania, he won Wisconsin, he won Michigan. He was not able to get to replicate the same thing four years later. How much of that was over a Russia situation that never gave him credit for the win? And how much was it that people like Hillary Clinton, who did call and concede, granted, had to be urged by President Obama to do it, but this was her tone and still is her tone seven years later? I think it's also critical to understand that 
as I've been telling candidates who have come to see me, you can run the best campaign, you can even become the nominee, and you can have the election stolen from you. Is that what uh, Joe Biden was referring to when he contests a free and fair election? Is that what he was referring to? And when you talk about the popular vote, you shut them off. And if Republicans do it, too, I don't want to hear it because that's not how you run the race. I mean, the the best analogy is you don't have a baseball game on total hits. You might say, well, we out hit him 13 to 4, but you lost 4 to. No one says, but I out hit him 13 to 4. It doesn't matter. We don't keep score on hits. It is runs. You don't like that? Change the rules of baseball. That's it. We outshot in soccer. Uh, 100 to 4, but we lost one nothing. It's not fair. Life's not fair. That's not the way you play the game. You play for one goal. That's a way of attacking and winning. Same thing, sports analogy works. But if Joe Biden truly was a statesman, and I haven't seen a statesman out there, so believe me, uh, I'm with you. But I haven't on either side. He would say, listen, I am not thrilled with the way Hillary Clinton handled 2016. And the illegitimacy call on Donald Trump from 2016 to 2020 did not help this country. Although I wish Hillary Clinton had won. But in 2020, and just fill in the blank from what he already said. Here's a little of what the vice president said uh, before the president. Cut 41. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them where they were and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021. On that day, I was not only vice president-elect, I was also a United States senator. And I was here at the Capitol that morning at a classified hearing with fellow members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Hours later, the gates of the Capitol were breached. Right. Um, and she is dying to change the subject because there's another staffer that have resigned for the vice president. She's an epic fail in the number two spot. When if she was even competent, there would be a big push by their own party to put her in there. This guy, Vincent Evans, has just resigned, the vice president, deputy of public engagement and intergovernment affairs. He has quit to take on a role in Capitol Hill. That, according to CNBC, there's been at least now five confirmed departures from Harris's office. They are dying to talk about this. And again, not soft peddling it. They want to do this to put pressure on Democrats to get rid of the filibuster. They say carve out, but it'll be gone for good and have nationalized elections so they don't lose anymore. It's not going to happen. And uh, they will rue the day uh, that they get rid of the filibuster because Republicans are poised to take back every chamber quickly. If I could use Donald Trump's term. So I want to talk about the other epic fail. So President Biden says, I'm going, to, I'm going to kill the virus, not the economy. He did not do the simplest thing. He did not uh, order ahead of time therapeutics that are now ready, 90% effective. He has $20 million. Uh, last count, we have $340 million in this country. Uh, 12 and over have gotten vaccinated. So many breakthroughs, we can't even keep up with them. They told us if you're vaccinated, you're not going to get the virus. That's wrong. It's not a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's wrong. So Joe Biden is somebody that didn't do the easiest thing. He didn't actually pre-order tests that came prior to his administration. That He didn't pre-order the rapid tests or the long-form tests. He didn't pre-order the swabs or the labs. 
uh, put them in place should we get another variant, which we were, uh, confirmed they were going to get another variant. If you listen to Scott Gottlieb, he said they were coming. If you listen to Robert Gedford Redfield, he said they were coming. I shut off Dr. Anthony Fauci because I think he's ridiculous and I believe he's uh, basically a fraud. He didn't do any of that. So what is President Tr- Biden talking about then? He's going to talk about January 6th and Donald Trump. And also, he fears Donald Trump is getting traction again, and he's absolutely right. I'm not sure the best thing for the country is Donald Trump to run again, but I know there's about eight Republicans uh, that are more than qualified to blow him out of the water if he does, in fact, get the nomination. So what are you going to do? When in trouble, do what CNN does. Talk about Donald Trump. So the testing is not there. And if you see even Jake Tapper calling out the president for not doing the simplest thing possible— And what I think is criminal is not using the same anger that he just used in those two speeches uh, in that speech on Capitol Hill. The anger that he had on Monday blaming the unvaccinated. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. But when it comes to telling kids, teachers to get back in school, there's no anger there through a spokesperson. Just some logic saying that they belong back in school. Case in point yesterday. Cut four. Today, this week, uh, as we're as the president is working, uh, and we are all working to keep schools open. Uh, as the president said yesterday, uh, he wants schools to be open. We know they can be open safely, and we're here to help make that happen. Hmm. Does that sound like someone demanding, demanding action? No, it doesn't, because they're not. Chicago, the third biggest school district, uh, they're staying out. They're, they're getting their pay threatened. It doesn't matter. Uh, There's about 90 school districts in Pennsylvania that are not going. I know a whole bunch in Maryland. But what they're trying to do is make it work. You heard me with a caller earlier uh, in the hour, excuse me, in an earlier hour on this show, talking about she's ahead of the union. And all they do is try to get kids in school. So it's not easy. They lose teachers. I love what New Jersey's doing. New Jersey said, if you're retired, keep your retirement. I'll pay you what you were paying. But we need you to come out of retirement because the kids need to stay in class. And so many teachers have tested positive. That's the American attitude. That's resourcefulness. Not pretending there's no problem. That's not right. Not pretending that there are breakthrough on vaccines. That's not right. Not pretending that vaccines don't work. That's not right. But looking at the reality and saying, how do I live with this? How do I get my kids back on the field? How do I get my basketball players back on the court? Volleyball players, the same thing. How do I make sure my track team can run reasonably, no masks, outdoors, cross country? That's what we have to be doing in 2022. I thought that was pretty apparent. So when we come back, your thoughts. Bottom of the hour, we talk, well, and next I'm going to lay the groundwork for talking about crime. And, uh, and the so distressing with the Attorney General of New York, who just won an election, has pledged to be. If I go by what this Attorney General said on Monday, we are going to look at New York City being a bigger, badder, more dangerous San Francisco. That story, and then Bill Bratton at the bottom of the hour to tell us what we can do about it as a country and a city when we return. Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. The CDC is absolutely led by data and science. Um, And, you know, again, if they hadn't changed their recommendations over the course of time, schools would probably be closed across the country, right? Uh, They, of course, are um, continuing to address, as they have for the past year plus, uh, steps that need to be taken in order to protect the American people. 
Right. Uh, and evidently, Chicago hasn't. It's a lose-lose all around. Now they say go back to school. And they say, well, we don't have anything done. But they spend millions of dollars on this various CRT programs, which are just sinful. In terms of getting back, I thought Professor Wilford Riley named it. He said, well, these teachers don't want to go back. It absolutely makes no sense. Can someone please think about the kids? Cut eight. Eight. Teachers are great people, but teachers unions are there, quote unquote, for the kids like the United Auto Workers is there for the cars. I mean, of course, COVID is dangerous potentially, but every retail worker or police officer in this country has just been going to work for the past two years. We have vaccinations. They drop risk by something like 90 percent. It's not unrealistic, given how virtual learning has failed. It's not abusive to ask teachers to show up and go to work. That, that's going to have to return to being the normal sometime very soon. And hopefully that time is right now. Yeah, I would hope so. And Professor Riley, that's a great line. Uh, they care about kids like uh, the uh, auto workers care about cars. I think the unions, but I think the auto maker, the auto worker cares about that, that car. If you talk to people who do manufacturing, even on something that's impersonal, they take great pride in it. Uh, Eric, who's on WOKV in Jacksonville. Hey, Eric. Hey, Brian. Happy New Year. You're uh, you're exactly right about the distraction. They're going to do everything they can to avoid the catastrophes that we're undergoing right now. But uh, if Kamala Harris is going to mention a bunch of dates, she mentioned 9-11, but she didn't mention 9-11 in 2012. And that was a big disrespect to the people that just got got killed over there. Benghazi. And, yeah. And, and I mean, and she didn't want to mention that because... The president was involved in all of those horrible decisions. They they said it was over of YouTube video and then stormed out Leon Panetta to say we wouldn't have time to respond when they had no idea knowing what time they had to respond. And it was all just a big cover up. And I think that she should have just left 9-11 out and mentioned both of them or mentioned neither of them because she has a selective speech there. What's your opinion on that? Well, my opinion is uh, that uh, she's having a terrible uh 2022, it got a terrible start. A fifth person has left, and when they came out with their remarks, they didn't even mention the vice president on their exit tweet. Uh, next, I think that she is desperate to change the subject because everything she done has failed. She wanted to look official in doing this, and she gave a couple of interviews. Um, the other day she sent out a tweet that talked about how we're trying to keep everything moving with this infrastructure package while people were stuck 22 hours plus in traffic well, thanks to the bad infrastructure in Virginia, which should be elite because so much, so many people, uh, tax dollars in the Defense Department went there. So uh, she has been an epic fail. And I thought it was interesting today in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Dan Henniger wrote, here's what the Democratic ticket for 2024, Joe Manchin and Eric Adams. If you want to scare Republicans— you put those two on a ticket and nominate them and get behind them. But Democrats despise Joe Manchin for calling balls and strikes on what's going to help West Virginia and the country and not just going blindly with Democratic doctrine. And Eric Adams, he's only a few days in, has talked about being a reasonable Democrat, has talked about being pro-law and order has talked about not vilifying rich people and the need to get them back from Florida because they are the tax base. So, and also, I love what he did with schools. He picked someone to run his school system that was for charter schools. Most Democrats hate charter schools. Crime and punishment next.
The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I challenge anyone to suggest what's going on right now is working. You know, a system that's ripe with racial disparities, a system where we have uh, increased, uh, uh, you know, gun violence and increased incarceration. We've laid out a path that is going to reduce incarceration, reduce violent crime, get people services, get neighborhoods uh, safer, get New York City back up on its feet. It's the road forward. It's the pathway to safety and justice. Uh, that is uh, an interview with our, our own Eric Sean with the new Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, who stunned everybody by going against the at least words of the new mayor, who's about law and order and backing police as a former captain, although he has a background that has many people questioning him who wear the uniform. Uh, he came out and said this, roughly, outlined what he's going to prosecuting and not. Absent exceptional circumstances, he'll not seek to, uh, he'll not seek harsh sentences for homicide, domestic violence, felonies, corruption, and sex crimes. Prosecutors cannot take a sentence of life without parole. Sentences cannot be longer than 20 years. He will not push for, uh, for resisting arrests. He's going to downgrade those that levels of crime along with interfering with arrests. Can you imagine being a cop and this is what the DA is telling everyone in Manhattan? Also, trespassing and prostitution, turnstile jumping. It's the opposite of the broken windows policy that helped uh, Bill Bratton reign in this city that was out of control. Uh, the former police commissioner of the NYPD of Boston and uh, Los Angeles joins us now. Uh, commissioner, I could not be more crestfallen with the district attorney's statements on Monday. What about you? Well, Brian, uh, we should not be surprised because this is exactly what he campaigned on. This is what uh, voters in New York voted for. Uh, ironically, as he was campaigning on this uh, get out of free jail card platform, Eric Adams was campaigning on basically just the opposite, enforcing broken windows, getting tough on crime. So it'll be very interesting. They're doing a joint press conference this afternoon, uh, the mayor, the governor, uh, uh, to discuss a, the MTA situation. There'll be a time for reporters to ask uh, clearly, Mr. Adams, uh, how are you going to deal with the contradiction? You have the district attorney and the most vital uh, of the five boroughs who's effectively saying, I am not going to prosecute for not only minor crime, but serious crime. Uh, it is an experiment that is a recipe for a disaster. If you're a police commissioner, you get hired by the mayor but you're susceptible to the policies of the district attorney and the prosecutors and judges. They have been sidelined, essentially. What do you do? Well, uh, the new commissioner is in a very difficult position. Uh, she's going to have to defer to what the mayor is going to do. That's the reality of it. Uh, she is clearly uh, a necessity, uh, if she represents her men and women, going to be at odds with these policies. That These aren't just the policies of the Manhattan DA. Uh, Brooklyn, in particular, uh, has similar policies, uh, Bronx, Queens, to a lesser extent. But uh, uh, I first came to New York in 1990 as the transit police chief in a separate department to take on the rising crime in the subways. And that was the beginning of the New York City crime turnaround. And how did we attack it? We went after first fare evasion. 250,000 people a day at that time of the three and a half million riders not paying the fare. We broke the back of that. Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, was based on the turnaround of dealing with quality of life crime in New York City, something that people experience every day. Uh, 
what the new DA is doing is literally uh, erasing the last 30 years of success. I shouldn't say the last 30 years because the last two and a half, three years have been a disaster for crime and quality of life in New York. But for 27 years, I predicted with great confidence crime would not go up in New York City ever again. And I was proven wrong by the legislature, which in 2018-19 passed reform legislation, which this DA is embracing. And what did it do? It delivered some of the highest crime rates in 30 years. And it is just beginning. I just looked at the, uh, Brian, the comp stat sheets for the NYPD. Yeah. Overall crime in the city is trending up by double digits in every crime category. They've had a breathing space for the last week in murders and shootings, which are down for that one week. But when you look at the 28-day average, when you look at the, uh, the trending over the months and years, it is up by double figures, 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent. Uh, that doesn't bode well for the new mayor and the new police commissioner trying to deal with the district attorney who is effectively taking the handcuffs off the criminals and putting them on the police. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. There's no question. And I just think about the cop that just maybe got out of the academy and they say, wait a second, you're not got to prosecute for resisting arrest or for aiding the resisting arrest? I mean, what does that do to the man or woman on the street, sometimes by themselves going into a difficult situation, especially in this high-octane uh, high environment? Well, it's, it's a personal danger <clears throat> for them, but it's also responding to calls from victims. The bodega owner, who has just been confronted by a man with a gun or a knife, who he confronted when he was that individual was shoplifting, out comes the gun, threatens the owner, and police respond. They apprehend the suspect with the gun. But then the, uh, the owner finds the, all the police can do is give that person a desk appearance ticket. In other words, uh, uh, the new district attorney is focusing on the offense, not on the offender, not on the history of the offender. So the police are uh, uh, between a rock and a hard place, and they're going to get crushed. It's going to crush what is already very low morale. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how the mayor and his new police commissioner rise to this challenge. And this is a challenge not just in New York, which we're most familiar with, certainly, because we live here, but in the country. There was an article this morning about how most of the major cities in America have seen phenomenal rises in homicides and shootings. You look at every one of those, and one of the things you will see is a district attorney who is supporting very much what the Manhattan District Attorney just put out in writing, uh, the George Soros uh, cabal, if you will. Uh, uh, district attorneys who were funded in large part by Soros and his open society, and they are effectively uh, undermining the criminal justice system in America. Uh, the intention is to reduce incarceration rates, but I'm sorry, there's a lot of bad people out there uh, who should be in jail. That's the only way you're going to stop them from committing crime when they're in jail. They're not out there beating up on innocent citizens. And district attorneys and the Manhattan DA is the latest one. Forget that their obligation is to protect the victim, uh, not to be so focused on prioritization of protection of the, def uh, of the defendant, which is what they're doing. Absolutely. By the way, you recognize the voice. It's a former police commissioner in Boston, New York, and Los Angeles. Uh, Bill Bratton wrote the best-selling book, The Profession, a memoir of community race and the art of policing in America, who, although, you know, you, you made a, a lifetime, you, you made a career of not showing your emotion, this has to get at your utter core because you work so hard to rein in crime from coast to coast, and we're giving it away. Now, you're not just talking about George Soros and playing politics. He actually wrote a million-dollar check to Alvin Bragg's campaign, and it doesn't take much. It's not like a presidential campaign where a million dollars can get lost. A million dollars makes a difference, right? 
billion dollars in a local DA campaign anywhere is a huge investment, and that's what Soros is doing. He's investing uh, his ideology into the American criminal justice system, and that ideology is uh, uh, let him go. Uh, instead of uh, do the crime, uh, do the time, his opposite is do the crime, do it again. And that's effective what's going to go on here. Another thing that has been lost is the run-up to this new uh, district attorney's pronouncement is what's been going on in New York State in particular. You have the criminal justice bail reform laws that have been disastrous. Crime has been going up dramatically, double digits since those were passed. You have the change in the age from uh, 18 uh, for juveniles uh, that basically is allowing a lot more of these young men to get away with serious crime. But we also have a uh, ruling by the state Supreme Court that effectively upholds a law that was passed earlier, that the police department cannot look at the sealed records of a offender who's been arrested. And in many instances, DAs for years to basically get out of having to try people have been giving them reduced sentences, uh, have been giving them reduced charges, that you're arrested for a felony and they bargain it down to a misdemeanor. And then on top of it all, they seal it, the frosting on the cake. Now the police cannot even look at an individual they arrest. They cannot look to see, has he been arrested for anything else in the past? Why? Because they abide by state law, yeah. once again, the legislature. So you arrest that guy with the gun robbing the bodega. All you can look at is the single offense. He might have robbed, robbed 10 other bodegas, but they have no ability, if those records are sealed, to put it all together. Doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't make sense. There's no logic there. And I didn't I major in criminal justice. Here's more from Alvin Braggs talking to our own Eric Sean yesterday, trying to expand on what he was thinking. Cut 16. What we're doing now is not working, plain and simple. Uh, and so this is our path forward. This is how we reduce violent crime. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, it, it, it just depends upon your definition of criminal. Uh, and for all too long, kind of dealt with this othering of, you know, anyone we put in jail is a, a criminal. You like his explanation? Well, he's basically, uh, uh, as a DA, he's basically changing statute law, defining what a criminal is. That's, uh, uh, so I guess he's going to rewrite Webster's Dictionary in terms of redefining to his own terms. No, the situation is he made the statement there that uh, uh, he's not taking into account that crime has been going up dramatically and the policies he's putting in place will not reduce it. I, I believe, and I think I'm pretty good at predicting this stuff, uh, it's going to expand it dramatically. Uh, fair evasion, case in point. When I first began enforcing fair evasion in 1990 and broke the back of it, one out of every seven people coming into the system not paying the fare were wanted on a warrant for previous offenses. One out of every 21 was carrying a weapon, ranging up to Uzi submachine guns. We changed that dramatically, that, uh, and that was the beginning of the crime turnaround. He is now changing it so that watch the revenue loss. It'll be interesting at that one o'clock press conference today how the governor intends to deal with the revenue loss as tens of thousands of people see fair evasion around them and say, why the hell should I pay a fare when all these other characters are leaping over and under and going through the slam gates without paying a fare? Uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. He's well intended in the sense he's trying to keep a lot of people from basically a life of crime. But uh, some of these people uh, are not going to respond to that incentivization. They're going to take advantage of it. And uh, it's like raising a child. If you don't correct the child's behavior at an early stage, what happens? It gets worse and worse. And uh, that's effectively uh, what this grand experiment is going to show. 
I predict uh, it's going to fail because everywhere in America that these new district attorneys are putting these policies in, in states like California and New York are putting these criminal justice reform laws, what has happened since they have put those policies into place? Crime has gone up dramatically. Disorder has gone up dramatically. Homelessness has increased, ironically, dramatically. What has not gone down is crime rates. Uh, what has gone down is incarceration rates, which is what they'd like to see happen. Well, that's wonderful with fewer people in jail. But if that means more people out in the streets victimizing mm-hmm. the innocent uh, public, uh, why is that a success? So I, you will not find anywhere in America where any of these policies of these new DAs or these new state laws, other than reducing jail populations, are reducing crime or disorder. Uh, right. uh, it, it, all over backwards, uh, uh, if you can find one of these cities that this stuff is working, it's not. You know, I, I don't wish for crime to hit anyone, but the only thing that's going to get people's attention, uh, uh, Commissioner, is when it hits the, the nice neighborhoods. And you see the people of Beverly Hills are now supporting the uh, the recall of their, their district attorney, uh, Gascon. And you saw the outrage in San Francisco. And finally, the mayor spoke up in San Francisco after the series of smash and grabs hit some of the nicest areas in, uh, in San Francisco. And then when you're doing a parade, a holiday parade, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and one of the uh, the guy that runs over these innocent people and these seniors and these children was somebody that was out on a uh, out on bail when he never should have been. These are all permissive DAs, and now you have a pushback on the on the smashing grab. Let's knock it down instead of not prosecuting smashing grabs under a thousand. Let's make it under four hundred. Do you get the sense as Philly becomes also with one of those DAs, the homicide capital of the country? Do you get the sense that the average American citizen is as fed up as you are? Uh, Unfortunately, at the moment, no, because the reality is that even with the rising crime rates, who is most impacted by it? Minorities. Uh, Ironically, the, uh, the population that these DAs are trying to project that uh, the misused term of mass incarceration, that uh, who are the principal victims of this uh, crime in terms of the body count? It is, by and large, minorities killed and shot by other minorities. Or store owners like a bodega uh, victimized by uh, the, uh, the young men in the, his, his neighborhood. George Gascon, who just mentioned, ironically, George was my chief of operations at the LAPD and helped me drive down crime dramatically and improve race relations in L.A. during our time together. Uh, he then went off to be chief in uh, uh, Arizona for a while, but then he was district attorney in San Francisco and began many of the policies that are now afflicting San Francisco. He goes to Los Angeles and is elected DA there where he's putting in the same policies that our new DA is putting in right. with the same effect. The disorder is incredible. It's going to reach a point at some point in time where the visibility of the disorder really starts raising the fear. So subway riders, if they get them back in the subways with the coronavirus issue resurfacing, they're going to start seeing a lot more disorder on the subways as the homelessness is increasing below ground and the cops don't have the tools to deal with it, as the fear evasion increases. And as they look around and they're the only ones paying the fare, that's when it starts hitting home that, hey, what the hell is going on here? But for the moment, uh, yeah. Soros and his people have figured out the formula. How do we change the criminal justice system? Uh, they're engaged in a grand experiment that I believe is going to fail. Uh, and that's my prediction. Yeah, let's hope this press conference gives us hope again that I had on Monday. Uh, before well, I might provide some answers in the sense of how is the new mayor 
working closely, fortunately, for the first time with a governor uh, who unfortunately is going to tilt to the left to get reelected. Uh, the MTA issue, how are they going to get people back on the system when all around them people are not paying the fare? When the subways, like the picture I posted a week or so ago, a subway car overtaken at 745 in the morning by the homeless. And that, that photo, by the way, and my uh, Twitter were misinterpreted. One of my points was, what has society done to address this as far as those individuals living on a subway car? the total failure of government to basically take care of them in terms of sanitary facilities for the mentally ill. Government has failed all around. And who's about to clean up the mess? Police. Well, back in the early 90s, Brian, I had... Uh, Got you, Commissioner. Boom. Yeah, we're up against the break. I know what you did. It's amazing. It's all in your book, too, uh, The Profession. Bill Bratton, fantastic. Real education. Thank you. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, some courageous men and women in the Republican Party are standing against it, trying to uphold the principle of that party. Too many others are transforming that party into something else. They seem no longer to want to be the party, the party of Lincoln, Eisenhower, Reagan, the Bushes. But whatever my other disagreements are with Republicans who support the rule of law and not the rule of a single man, I will always seek to work together with them to find shared solutions where possible. Because if we have a shared belief in democracy, then anything is possible. Anything. Yeah, there's a great unifier. Uh, President Biden making a speech this morning about eight, at 9 a.m. Uh, it was a year ago, January 6th, that the um, that the we saw all that the rioters uh, go into the Capitol, some idiots going into people's offices, threatening lawmakers, saying hang Mike Pence and using Confederate flags. But not everybody there was an insurgent looking to destroy the country. Some were walking in right afterwards after a rally that obviously the president would have done a lot of good not to have, period. But I do not think he intended that. I know his followers didn't. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. John Adrasik from Five for Fighting has put together an incredible video looking at the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the biggest disaster in American military history, and its ramifications are being felt uh, in foreign policy everywhere from Eastern Europe uh, to the South China Sea, uh, and as well as uh, Iran. And we're feeling it uh, on a daily basis. He is not forgetting it. You're not forgetting it. I'm not forgetting it. He wrote this uh, song called Blood on My Hands, standing in front of the White House. And it is uh, calling out General Milley. It is calling out General Austin. It is calling out, of course, General McKenzie. I also talked to Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stuart Schiller today. And he is the one who spoke out and got jailed for doing it, calling out the commanders, because nobody paid the price for that irresponsible exit from that country who is about to go into mass starvation because they are um, our economy. We were their economy, and we have left. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. As of today, we have arrested and charged more than 725 defendants in nearly all 50 states and the District of Columbia for their roles in the January 6th attack. Yeah, that is Merrick Garland, electrifying speaker. January 6th, a one-year mark, an ugly day in American history, propelled by an ill-advised Stop the Steal rally. 
but overplayed already politically by politically minded Democrats who seek to convert this into blowing up the filibuster and nationalizing elections, comparing it to Pearl Harbor. Really? Number two. What we're doing now is not working, plain and simple. Uh, and so this is our path forward. This is how we reduce violent crime. Would these policies give criminals a green light? No. I mean, it, it, it just depends upon your definition of criminal. People who break the law. How about that? That's the new uh, attorney general of Al, uh, Alvin Bragg, uh, district attorney. Uh, he is basically going to let crime happen without punishment. Uh, it is going to look like San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia again. That's a scary thought here in New York. Number one. I will not allow them to take our children hostage. I will not allow them to compromise the future of this generation of CPS students. That is not going to happen. Really? Uh, Mayor Lightfoot suddenly realized what Donald Trump knew right away. Kids got to be back in school, even though there is a somewhat of danger and caution. Get them back in school. The COVID chaos. Think about this. President Biden characterizing his one-year approach of his four-year reign. He has failed on testing. He's failed on mandates. He's failed when it comes to the circus of the CDC. And now his refusal to take on the teachers' unions directly hurts, which I think is the most offended and the most afflicted, and that is kids. With me right now is Robert O'Brien. When he left office, pandemic was the number one issue. It remains even worse than ever. Uh, he's a former U.S. ambassador and 28th National Security Advisor. Uh, Robert O'Brien, welcome back. Hey, great to be with you, Brian. How are you today? Good. Can you believe we're still talking about a lack of testing? Uh, we're still talking about returning to schools. This was the theme of the last year of your off in office, right? Well, it's, it, it, it's pretty interesting when you look back at what we did with Project Warp Speed, with uh, me warning the president in uh, January uh, of, of 2020 that this was coming from China and it was going to be a huge problem for the country. And, and then you look at what we did with ventilators, what we did with manufacturing PPE domestically, uh, Project Warp Speed. You just don't see the same alacrity uh, taking place now. It's, uh, it's unfortunate. Literally, just fill out an invoice. We're not asking you to invent a test. We're asking you to order the test. So he had $1.4 trillion to order tests, rapid and the long form, PCR tests, and he didn't do it. And you look at Europe, there, uh, you know, there's test, testing centers everywhere. There's pop-up testing centers. There's the centers that are the equivalent of food trucks on every, every corner in Europe. It's very easy to get a test. There are no lines. And you look here, there are lines in you know, baseball stadium parking lots for you know, thousands of people lined up to get a test. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Well, a couple of things. You know, now that we know what we know. Are you surprised that there was such pushback anytime any, anyone not named Tom Cotton or even Tom Cotton was sidelined every time we talked about the origins of this virus? In fact, we had uh, Dr. Collins, Frank Collins, who before he resigned, said just bringing up that this came from a lab leak is a distraction. That was about two weeks ago. Well, can you well, the, bring the, us the back to the mindset? Is, is it was a political issue that they used against President Trump. So unless you tied COVID to Trump, uh, then it wasn't a, uh, a valid issue. So if you, if you talked about the fact that, the, that it came from China, that the Chinese Communist Party covered up the virus for critical months, which would allow us to get ahead of it and started working, we could have started working on uh, therapeutics and, and vaccines months earlier if there had been honesty coming out of Beijing. Uh, we could have gotten you know, ahead of the, the game on PPE. Uh, none of that was talked about because it, it was all a political effort to uh, to tie the virus to Trump when, when it came from China. It's 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 pretty remarkable. Ambassador O'Brien, how do you feel? I mean, I'm one. I, I don't want to see the Olympic Games destroyed, but right now there's another surge of another variant in China, and what they do is they just lock you in your house and they're not even feeding their own people. Should we, do you would you advise a president to reconsider going there? 
Well, listen, we, we watched this happen in 1980 and 1984. I went to the Olympics out here in Los Angeles in 1984, and it was too bad not to see the Soviets. <clears throat> Soviet athletes compete in that Olympics. Uh, you know, these athletes prepare their entire life for, for this one moment, and and if they, they if if the moment moves by a year or, or especially four years, they may miss their opportunity to compete. So you hate to see that happen. But what you also don't want to do is legitimize the Olympics, not just because of the virus, but because of the the way the Chinese are treating the Uyghurs. There's a genocide taking place in a country where we're, we're about to hold an Olympic Games in a country that's engaged in genocide. I mean, that's pretty amazing, and, and that's a bipartisan consensus. I mean, Tony Blinken has said that it's a genocide. Mike Pompeo said it's a genocide. Uh, this is official U.S. policy. So, uh, you know, the, the diplomatic boycott is not enough. Uh, I'm not calling for a boycott of the uh, of the athletes. I think they ought to be able to to compete. But we shouldn't have, you know, American companies. And I I, I think American companies that support these Olympics are going to have to live down the shame for many many years and many many decades uh, when the when the truth comes out. And and you know, the truth is known now. So if you're an American company thinking about advertising during these these Beijing genocide games. Uh, you ought to think twice about it. I would think so. Uh, NBC paid a ton for it, too, so they're in a tough position, but it should be pretty easy. It's called right and wrong. Lieutenant uh, D- uh, Ambassador, um, I'm going to talk about my interview with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller shortly, but and you might not remember, but as I'm reading more and more about the origins of this virus, do you remember the military games taking place in Wuhan? Do you remember some concerning things crossing your deaths about this possible virus and the ghost town that they found there, our athletes found there when they went to compete? You know, not at the time of the games, but but you'll recall uh, when the virus first started spreading, one of the propaganda talking points of the, the Chinese Communist Party was that it was an American athlete that brought the virus from the United States to China during those military games. And, and that just shows the, 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 the depth of the cover-up and the willingness to to lie and say whatever it took to try and protect the the Communist Party of China at the time that the virus was spreading, so you know, uh, like there is a real worry about you know how how this could play out with the Olympics. Uh, you know, you, Tokyo did a pretty good job with the uh, the way they handled their Olympics, and uh, you know, I'm proud of the Japanese people and the way that they uh, kept the virus from spreading during those games. But uh, uh, and you lack a similar confidence in the Chinese because you don't have the transparency in China that you had in in Japan with a a democracy and a vibrant press and, uh, you know, all the checks and balances that, that, that allowed us to, to compete in those games with confidence. You, you don't have that. That does not exist in China. Robert O'Brien, our guest. Uh, Ambassador, the, it looks like China, phase one of the Chinese-U.S. agreement, uh, it looks like they're not hitting their marks on purchasing American products, manufacturing and uh, agricultural on any level. In some levels, they're 60% off what they vowed. Do you turn around and recommend to a president at this point knowing the relations with China arguably have never been worse, and say, put the tariffs back? Well, the, the only thing the Chinese understand is is that sort of power, and, and it was the tariffs that, that got us the phase one deal to begin with. And, and unfortunately, the Chinese were not honoring that deal from, from the very start. Uh, during the, the last year of the Trump administration, they kept telling us, don't worry, we'll catch up, we'll catch up, we'll catch up, don't put the tariffs back on. But at this point, the pattern is clear. Uh, the Chinese are not living up to the agreement. And th- this, is, this isn't something new. I mean, the Chinese have been doing traded agreements since the late 1980s, including entering the WTO as a, a developing country. And they haven't kept their word on trade agreements for you know, 40 years now. So this is part and parcel of, of how they behave on these agreements. The only way to get them to adhere to the agreement would be to put the tariffs back in place. And, and that, that would send a strong message to Beijing. 
that this administration is going to take a, a, a tough line on uh, on enforcing the the agreement and, and holding China to its its vows. I mean, this is this is not us asking for something. This is the Chinese not doing what they promised to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as we as we move on and talk about today, January sixth, one year later, what do, what do you remember? Where were you at the time? You know, I was in Florida with the the brave men and women of our Coast Guard and Navy who had been doing extraordinary work the the prior year, stopping the flow of opioids and and marijuana and cocaine uh, into the country. And uh, I wanted to make sure that that uh, effort continued in the new administration during the transition. Uh, as soon as I heard about what happened, uh, uh, I was pulled out of a skiff. I was being briefed by our, our commander, our combatant commander, and. In Miami, as soon as I heard about what happened, I got out, got on the phone with the vice president to make sure he was safe in the Capitol, and, and he was, you know, protected by our dedicated men and women of the U.S. Secret Service. I, I put out a personal tweet condemning the uh, the mob and and telling them to stand down and, and leave the Capitol. And, and then we went on to have the most successful, what, what many people say is the most successful transition uh, from an NSC um, to an incoming NSC National Security Council that, that's ever happened in history. And that was with the full support of President Trump. And so, um, you know, we're, I, I'm proud of how the National Security Council handled the, you know, the the, the transition. And, and and you know, I said everything I needed to say about the events uh, at the time. And what's unfortunate is the politicization of of this. The people that are so concerned about January 6th uh, are the same people that are now threatening, to, you know, blackmailing the Supreme Court, saying if they don't rule a certain way, they're going to pack the court. Uh, who, who want to uh, change the constitutional status of a mid-sized city uh, that's controlled by the Democrats, Washington, D.C., and give them two senators to ensure a, a majority in the Senate who, who don't want any sort of election integrity or voter ID. You know, you, to, to vote in an African election, you have to have an ID, you know, in Botswana or South Africa, and yet right. uh, they don't want that here. So, you know, the, the same people that, that supported the, uh, the the Clinton campaigns bought and paid for uh, uh, Russia dossier that hobbled our government for two years uh, in dealing with Putin in Ukraine because uh, of the attacks against President Trump, claiming that he was somehow a Russian agent, which was just absurd. Uh, so, so the, the the you know the, the hypocrisy of the folks that are focused on January 6th right now is 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 pretty damning, and you know instead of focusing on how to right. how to bring the country together. Uh, they're continuing to try and divide the country. We, we need we need America to come together. We've got we have ch- faced massive challenges with China and Taiwan, with Russia and Ukraine, with the Iranians racing to a nuclear weapon. We need to come together as a country. And and you know the sort of divisiveness that we're seeing, you know, is really unfortunate. Is this is this what you were talking about? Cut thirty nine. He built his lie over months. wasn't based on any facts. He was just looking for an excuse, a pretext. To cover for the truth, he's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president, defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes in a full and free and fair election. Is that the tone you were hoping for? Well, listen, I, I think what people had hoped, many people had hoped for with, with President Biden is that uh, it would be the old Scranton Joe, a, a moderate Democrat who would, would bring the country together. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, the... Uh, uh, the, the tone of the, the administration, but especially the tone coming out of Congress uh, on, the, on the left has been very, very divisive over the past year. And, uh, and, and again, I, I hope the country comes together uh, and, and that we face the massive challenges that, that uh, are confronting America, especially the existential threat from uh, the Communist Party of China, which is trying to sow this division in our country. And, 
and we need we need we need folks that are going to bring the country together at this point. Um, I saw I I saw um, uh, Hastert Ken Hastert come out yesterday and say, you know, if the president runs again, I'll, I'll support him. Would Robert O'Brien be there too if President Trump runs again? Well, I, I've said that from the start that if the president runs again, that I'll, I'll certainly endorse him on day one. I was I served as I was you know, privileged to serve as national security advisor, and when you look back, I mean, folks may have concerns about. Uh, you know how, how the president tweeted and that sort of thing, but what I, I tell people is that uh, take a look at what the president did, especially in foreign policy, the Abraham Accords. We brought peace to the Middle East for the first time in, in 40 years. Uh, it, you know, we, we moved the we, we fulfilled a, a campaign promise that Republicans and Democrats have been making for for years to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and recognize the the eternal capital of the state of Israel. Uh, we brought uh, economic normalization to Serbia and Kosovo. We brought you know, 55 American hostages and wrongful detainees all over the world. No, I hear you. Afghanistan so you're, you're to Yemen in. to, I want to, get to, you to, to so, Iraq home. No, uh, Robert, so, Robert, so when yeah. you look at what the president did, we stood up to the Chinese for the first time in, in 50 years. So it, it's, a, it's a pretty impressive record of accomplishment just on the foreign policy front, not to mention the, the low inflation, the low energy prices, the uh, the booming economy. So I, I think there's an appetite for for certainly if the president decides to run uh, the, the Trump agenda, but but certainly a conservative right. agenda, a peace or strength to, uh, to bring America back. Leslie, the biggest failure that I can remember maybe in American history is the exit from Afghanistan. People say, well, he just took Donald Trump's plan and implemented it. What does Robert O'Brien say about that? Well, uh, what, what I can say is that on January 20th of, of 2021, when we left office, there were 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan. More importantly, there were 5,000, or as importantly, there were 5,000 NATO troops, two-to-one NATO troops to American troops, which the president negotiated to make sure that our European allies were, were sharing the burden of Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan was the, – the security situation was under control. We were conducting counterterrorism operations across the country. And, and Kabul was, uh, and our people and, and our allies were, were generally safe. And, and that situation changed dramatically. We left Americans behind. We left Afghan allies behind. Would you have done the same the, thing, though? You want to get out sooner. No, we, look, we, we wanted to get out, but we wanted to get out after there was a negotiated agreement between the, the government and, the, the, and the, the Taliban, the transition government. And if we would have gotten out uh, under any circumstances, American civilians would have gotten out safely. Uh, all of our equipment would have been taken out uh, safely, and only then would the military have left. I mean, that that was the plan. I mean, can you imagine? We, we can you imagine what the Ukrainians would do with all the with the eighty billion dollars of, of military equipment Amazing. that we left behind for the it Taliban? It would have been easy. Just can to you imagine if we moved that that equipment to to Ukraine and to Robert O'Brien, one of the most respected people from the Trump years. Thanks so much. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Just uh, I'm uh, just very thankful you guys continue to buy the President, the Freedom Fighter. Uh, the book is still ranked uh, number thirteen now in the New York Times list. It's now for nine weeks, which is unbelievable. The other thing to keep in mind too is the number one book is the 1619 Project. So that's kind of sad. But when the New York Times has a list. And they publish a book called The 1619 Project, and they make it a curriculum, and then they make it CRT, talk about how America was built on stolen land, and it was, uh, it was fueled by slave labor. Uh, and that is really why we exist today, and we are an uh, inherent racist country. All things that are not true, 
and it's hardly the fueling and foundation of the country. It is part of our history. If you want to characterize it negatively, usually by our enemies like China, Russia, or Iran. But that's the way the author of, of this project characterizes America. And not only exceptional, the worst, literally the worst country, if you read her book. But you, just in case, every uh, almost every historian has blown up the the quality of this book and the facts that are not in this book. But yesterday took the cake. She talked about the beginning of the Civil War in 1865, that the Union reluctantly went into it. If you don't know when the Civil War started in 1860, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be the author of the 1619 Project that is built off uh, the history of slavery in North America. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That's not true. It took the Taliban just one week to regain control of Afghanistan. Disaster unfolding very quickly. This is really an American catastrophe. Catastrophe. Secretary of State Blinken declaring this is manifestly not Saigon. Afghans who helped the West now fearing for their lives. 10,000 civilian SIB applicants. Millions more are left behind. And then this, an act of utter despair. That is just a little of the video, five-minute video that goes along with a brand new song, uh, with a song that you might have heard, uh, "Blood on My Hands." After the Afghanistan pullout embarrassed the nation, embarrassed our country, and maybe the worst military uh, incident in the history of our country. I mean, it really makes the exit from Vietnam and Saigon look like just an afterthought compared to the uh, the idiotic, childlike way in which we left a country. Uh, that we've been trying to stand up for 20 years, that is a den of terror once again. John Andrasik not only realized that, he wrote a song about it. He's the lead singer, songwriter for Five for Fighting. Uh, the name of the uh, song, as I mentioned, is Blood on My Hands. But before you get to the song, you see the video uh, through the song that has now been released. It's on my Twitter feed. I'm sure you can get it everywhere now. John, welcome to the Brian. Welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brian, it's been a long time. Happy New Year. Yeah, you were in studio. We were on a different floor. We're down to the 15th floor, but uh, and the show's gotten bigger, and so have you. Uh, first <laughs> off, I really thank you for doing this, because too many people have forgotten what happened and the carnage left behind with Afghanistan. Why is it such a passion for you? You know, I think, like all of us, you know, when we initially watched those images of people falling from planes and mothers handing babies over walls— we were stunned. You know, for me, uh, kind of harkened back to 9-11, where we just saw these horrible images we couldn't imagine. But it really became personal for me. Um, through, throughout the kind of withdrawal, I was, you know, banging on my piano for just cathartic means. I had no intention of writing a song. But uh, the day after our last soldier left, I got a call from a friend of mine, and she's, she's one of my heroes. She does this incre- incredible humanitarian work around the world. And she said, hey, I need a contact. I go, sure, no problem. What's going on? And she said, uh, I'm organizing evacuations of American citizens from Afghanistan. And there was silence on the line. And, and, I, and I finally said, you're telling me you're risking your life to go rescue the citizens we left behind. And she's like, oh, yes. And then there's all these allies and these people being hunted. And I couldn't believe it, Brian. And I know we're four months later, but I still am stunned by that. And I started writing a song that night, um, and it finished itself, frankly, when the president gave his extraordinary success speech. And again, I think a lot of us were stunned by that. And I expected our generals to come out and clarify that. You know, you know, I've spent my life 
you know, performing for our troops. I have great respect for our, our military, and I've always expected our generals to be honorable and forthright. But when Millie and Austin parroted the extraordinary success airlift narrative, and I knew that this was a political operation only, I was scared. Uh, about not just Afghanistan, but the geo- geopolitical nature of, of what's going forward. So I finished the song that night. I put it out, um, as you know, four months ago. And uh, and here we are four months later with this video. Unbelievable that it's still happening. Today there's a big story about how the, the um, special forces, the Afghan special forces that we trained, are now asking to get out because they're being targeted. Uh, these are elite forces we put billions of, millions of dollars into, and and they're obviously the best of the best. It would do us good to get them out. Not only is it the right thing, it would be the smart thing. I don't know if we have even going to acknowledge this request, which is crazy. I want, if you did not hear the song Blood on My Hands, I want you to hear some of it right now. Winking, blinking, can't you? And you did, and they do. Uh, and you're sitting in front of the White House doing this, playing this, uh, while these images of what is happening on the ground, what was happening, what is happening on the ground in Afghanistan. And it is brutal. You see people hanged. Uh, you see people tortured. You see women being beaten, obviously, to death uh, because they're women and they want to read. So that's what we left behind. Now, I know we can't rebuild every country. I know that's not our, our ma- mantra. But we also just can't pick up and leave. There was a way to do it, John. I'm astounded that we ever figured out a way. What is your affiliation with the military? Like, how do you explain uh, the respect they have for you and you have for them? Again, you know, as a as a singer, I've I've always wanted to help <laughs> and support our our troops. And uh, when when Superman and Hundred Years came out, I started getting emails from Iraq, and uh, I learned very quickly how music. Um, can be cathartic and help their wellness, whether it's uh, to relax, bef- you know, before going on mission or to kind of find a, a piece of home. And it's interesting, Blood in My Hands has had somewhat of that effect on our veterans. Um, after the song came out, I got thousands of emails from veterans saying, thank you for speaking our pain and our shame. I mean, of course, you know, the suicide hotline rates went crazy after we left. But I really didn't get a sense of, of the impact of the song until, uh, until I started playing it live. And I would, you know, at, at the end of my tour, at the end of my shows, I'd kick off my quartet so they didn't get canceled. And I'd talk about the song and how it was a moral message, not a political one. And I'd sing it, and I'd have these veterans come up to me literally in tears. They couldn't even talk. They were so angry and ashamed that we had broken the no-man-left-behind promise. This is not just about, you know, trying to save the world. There's a difference with Afghanistan. We promised those people we trained we would take care of them, that we would protect them, that we promised those SIV holders. And SIV is a promise. We did not only break our promise to American citizens. We broke our promise to brothers and sisters in arms, and that had our veterans – Suicidal in some cases, still to this day, and I'm glad you brought up the special forces because I literally am on a signal chain every day, and I embedded with many of these groups like Project X's Relief and Pineapple, and the 
this is not just a humanitarian issue. It's a national defense one because those special force operators that you're talking about, those tens of thousands of Afghans that we trained, that are badass warriors, they have two choices, get out or join the Taliban. And we have to go back. And if we don't get them out, and it has to be policy because the State Department is undercutting every effort of our private hero organizations. If we don't have policy from Congress to get them out, we will be fighting them with our 19, 20-year-olds in the near future. So it's a national security issue, not just a humanitarian one. No question. So today, ironically, I talked to Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Schiller, who sacrificed his career, went to jail, lost his family, lost his $2 million pension because he stood up and couldn't believe, even though he fought for 17 years with an impeccable record and multiple medals of honor and valor, he could not believe his general officers were not taking the uh, paying the price ahead of time and afterwards with their careers and putting their stars on the line after this embarrassing evacuation from this country, abandonment. Here's a little of my interview and what he's calling for. Cut 31. So the general officers that advised the president should have advised better. The president, basically based on force restraints, said, no, here's the resources and restrictions that you're going to have. So the generals failed to advise on the appropriate plan. At that point, in my opinion, the general had an option to resign. The general chose not to resign. So when the general failed to advise an appropriate plan and then the general refused to resign, at that point, he's responsible. He doesn't, after the fact, get to go back and say, well, no, I offered him other plans and he told me this is what we were doing. The military general's responsibility is to advise on military policy and they can do that in an artful way. Where we're failing at wars is at the operational and strategic level. And he went on to say this, cut 32. Most Americans don't understand how the different agencies divide up the globe and Milley has a lot of contempt and discontent towards him right now justifiably because of the things he's done. But that's just not the way it works. CENTCOM combatant command are the people that should have developed the military plan. General McKenzie works directly for the SECDEF. He doesn't have to ask the chairman of Joint Chiefs on how to build a military plan. And most people just don't fundamentally understand that. So in terms of the Afghanistan withdrawal, General Milley is not even a player. It is General McKenzie to the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, to the president. And there is no one. I mean, General McKenzie was there from President Trump to President Biden. It was 100 percent his responsibility to have a better plan. And he still got a job. And then he killed in in response to the 13 dead. He killed seven innocent people. How does Schiller go to jail for saying exactly what you're singing about? And these other guys still have jobs and pensions. You know, I actually just I retweeted your interview because people ask me, how come I go after the generals in the video more than Biden? Um, and certainly it's the president's call. But I'll take it to another level. I, I, was, I was laughing when Tom Cotton asked General Milley why he didn't resign. And Milley said, because it would have been a political act. His whole career has been a political act. The fact is this. If he did in that meeting say, Mr. President, we need to keep troops there. We cannot abandon Bagram. Or when the debacle happened, we need to extend the deadline. And the president said, no, I'm going my way. There was one honorable option, and that was to resign or threaten to resign. Because, Brian, we know from the beginning this whole thing has been a political operation. It's about having a speech on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 that were out of Afghanistan. It's all political. And if those political hacks in the White House would have known that, okay, if we go this way, 
we're going to have resignations of General Austin, General Milley. I think it may have changed their dynamic. I think they may have made different decisions. So we may not be here if those generals had done the honorable thing. And I'm not just – this is not just some songwriter talking. This is virtually every veteran that I've spoken to, Scott Mann, go down the list. And to, the, to, your, <laughs> to your final point – there's zero accountability. The troops say to me, you know, if I'm a trigger man and I make a mistake, I get blamed for it, whether it's my fault or not. Millie, Austin, they're going to get big keynotes. They're going to get big pensions. Zero accountability. And what does that portray for China, Ukraine, Iran? There's a reason at the end of my video there's a little blip of Chinese planes that you don't see. The scariest thing in my video is something you don't see. It's Chinese planes flying over Taiwan. And I think we're very close to that. And that really scares me. Yeah, what scares me is people don't realize how they're connected. John Andrasik, uh, the singer-songwriter of Fire for Fighting, uh, go download his. How do we uh, download this video that came out on Monday with the song that you had written already, Blood on My Hands? The best way to see the video is just go to YouTube, put in Blood on My Hands White House. Um, the song's also on Spotify. Um, and, Brian, thank you for carrying the flag in Afghanistan. It's, it's really important that folks uh, – don't forget, because uh, the media has turned, turned the page. Uh, there's a reason I wrote a line, I can't hear her scream if she's not on TV, but you're, you're carrying the flag, and I salute you for that. I hear you. Thanks. The least I could do, John. Uh, same thing. It's just frustrating, and we didn't fight. Uh, can you imagine how they feel that they put on the face paint and wear the camouflage? Unbelievable. Uh, John, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, buddy. Take care. All right. You got it. Um, here's a little of the song as we go to break. You are... Um, you know what? Let's not even let's do it at the end of the show. Uh, we'll put it on again because I want you to download it. Go to YouTube and check out this video. I know you've seen a lot of video of the evacuation in Afghanistan, but not the montage that John put together. You have never seen anything like this. But basically, it's real, so real, I probably couldn't air the whole thing on television. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. What do you think of one of the 50 voters coming out and saying yesterday, quote, I don't think you can be the biggest jerk in the league and punish your team and your organization and your fan base the way he did and be the MVP. I think he's a bad guy, and I don't think a bad guy can be the MVP at the same time. I think he's a bum. I think he's an absolute bum. He doesn't know me. I don't know who he is. No one knew who he was probably until yesterday's comments. But And I listened to the comments, but to say... He had his mind made up in the summertime, in the offseason, that, you know, I had zero chance of winning the VP. My opinion should exclude future votes. His problem isn't with me being a bad guy or the biggest jerk in the league. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know anything about me. Hey, he really believes that it's about his stance on the vaccine because he's not vaccinated. Most valuable unvaccinated player. So we'll talk more about that. But I'm just looking at my watch now. It's time to find out if I need to know more. More to know. So the Packers superstar is more likely going to be the MVP, him or Tom Brady. Uh, just, you know, it turned the sports writers uh, get a vote on this, which is debatable, too. It's worth talking about. But this guy, Hub R. Cush, he's a Chicago media member, came out and said what he says. He says, I don't think the biggest jerk in the league, meaning Aaron Rodgers, uh, who punishes the team and his organization and the fan base, uh, should be the MVP. That's unbelievable. That has nothing to do with football. The biggest jerk in the league. What did he do wrong? By saying he's immunized because he did some certain things that has nothing to do with him. He's getting involved in politics. And I don't think sports writers should be voting for this, period. 
this is where you have to have total blinders on. You, it's supposed to be how you perform on the of field, course. how you perform in the clutch, how you elevate your team's play. And he has done that every single year. You could say right. Brady's better, but he's still an MVP, a, a multiple-time MVP. Yeah, especially the way he, the year started off with a brutal loss, and then he ends up rallying uh, and having the best year of his career while saying it's probably his last year, last uh, last season in Green Bay. But we will see. They are the number one seed. They got a week off. He basically has a walk. He plays the Lions this week. Gets a chance to heal that broken toe. Next, the Washington football team may have accidentally revealed their new name. Get this. They're going to be evidently on Monday. The CBS Sports reported that a website is called WashingtonAdmirals.com redirected to the WFT, mean Washington football team, uh, official website, WashingtonFootball.com. So could this be it? We heard other finalists were Armada, Presidents, Red Hogs. Well, apparently there's also a glimpse of the uniform they released, and it has four stars around the collar, which would indicate Admiral. Yeah, and by the way, uh, the former coach, John Gruden's brother, uh, who is Jay Uh, Jay Gruden, Gruden. said that they never should have changed the name, and almost everybody he talks to said they should still be the Redskins. I like the Admirals. Next. Antonio Brown is finally addressing the bizarre incident that ended his Bucks career, claiming the team uh, gave him a powerful, sometimes dangerous painkiller, also forced him to play despite knowing that he had a serious ankle injury, that he went and saw a doctor and it shows he is injured. And it's not that he refused to go in. He refused to because it hurt too much for him to go in. He said, I played until it was clear that I could not use my ankle to safely perform my playing responsibilities. The problem is we watch him strip, take off his uniform and his shirt, and dance around the end zone. Now, it's not exactly running a button hook at full speed against the best athletes in the world, but it doesn't look like his ankle he, was hurting. He was not limping during that sequence. I mean, I, I mean, they, everybody that was there that called that game, they, they said it was the most bizarre but thing they ever saw. But he was injured, but he was injured. He said Bucks coach uh, Bruce Arians claimed he never discussed an ankle injury with Antonio, but it is known that he was playing, according to Jen Hale, who I talked to today, talked to before the game, that he was playing with an ankle injury. Yeah, so he was playing. So I guess it could have gotten to the point. So let me ask you, as a head coach, he's always the old rule, you know, get out there, play when it hurts. But if the player says he can't do it, do you want a player that yeah, is not put, mentally ready? No, you can't put him in, especially in today's day and, uh, uh, day and age. Next, uh, an author facing backlash for a book claiming that Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse, killed two black men while raging a race war. The problem is they were white. And it's University of California, UCLA professor, Kara Cooney. She faces that backlash in a book. Cooney asks readers to consider 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who uses a semi-automatic weapon to kill two black men in Kenosha while waging a glorious race war. Uh, I don't think any of that's true. In fact, I know it's not. Sue, sue, sue. Meanwhile, this song is Blood on My Hands. Go to YouTube, watch this video, and understand why we should never forget what happened in Afghanistan. John Odrasik, uh is the lead singer. Never mind Hands From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.